Chapter 17 of The Romance of Modern Astronomy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Krista Zaleski. The Romance of Modern Astronomy by Hector McPherson. Chapter 17 Eclipses and Transits. In previous chapters, a brief survey has been made of the solar system the sun and its family of planets, and the comets and meteoric swarms. But before passing to a consideration of the vast universe outside of the solar system, it is well to consider the phenomena which arise from the movements of the various planets and the inclination of their orbits round the sun. These facts give rise to the two classes of kindred phenomena known as eclipses and transits. We cannot properly understand the cause of the periodic occurrences known as eclipses until we fully realize the fact that every body shining by reflected light casts a shadow into space in a direction opposite to the source of the illumination. Thus, the Earth casts a shadow, and the Moon casts a shadow. Similarly, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Venus, and the other planets cast shadows. But it is the shadows of the Earth and the Moon which cause the phenomena known to Earth's inhabitants as eclipses of the Moon and eclipses of the Sun. The Earth casts a shadow into space, and when the moon, the earth, and the sun are in a line, with the earth in the center, the shadow of the earth, which extends to and beyond the orbit of the moon, is thrown in the direction of our satellite. If the moon's orbit were exactly in the same plane or level as that of the earth, our satellite would pass at every revolution through the shadow. In other words, the moon would be totally eclipsed, and would become altogether invisible every time it reached the full phase. As a matter of fact, however, the moon's orbit is not exactly in the same plane as that of the Earth, and it is only occasionally that an eclipse does take place. Sometimes an eclipse of the moon is total, that is to say, the moon is completely immersed in the Earth's shadow, and sometimes only partial, a portion of the moon's disk remaining outside the true shadow. A total eclipse of the moon is a very striking and beautiful phenomenon. As the moon becomes more and more immersed in the shadow, the illuminated portion becomes smaller and smaller until it completely disappears. The moon is not, however, usually totally invisible. It generally assumes a dark copper-colored hue, caused by the refraction of sunlight through the atmosphere of the Earth. This is believed to be due to the fact that the blue rays of the sun are absorbed in passing through the atmosphere of the Earth, just as the sunset and sunrise skies are seen to assume a ruddy color. The moon, however, does not always assume this tint during eclipses. Sometimes there is a phenomenon known as the black eclipse, when the moon's surface is seen with a grayish-blue tint. Indeed, sometimes the moon disappears altogether during eclipse. These variations are explained by a well-known astronomer in the following remarks. It has been suggested that if the portion of the Earth's atmosphere through which the sun's rays have to pass is tolerably free from aqueous vapor, the red rays will be absorbed, but not the blue rays and the resulting illumination will either only render the moon's surface visible with a grayish-blue tinge, or not visible at all. This will yield the black eclipse. Eclipses of the moon have long been a source of terror to the unlearned, and especially to savage tribes. Many instances might be given of the fear which the darkening of the moon's light struck into the hearts of the ignorant, but one instance will suffice. An eclipse of the moon took place when Columbus was in the island of Jamaica in 1504. The eclipse was total and occurred very soon after sunset, and the event occurred at a most convenient time so far as the great explorer was concerned. 
In The Life of Columbus, by Sir A. Helps, the narrative is told as follows. The Indians refused to minister to their wants any longer. The famine was imminent. But just as this last extremity, the admiral, ever fertile in devices, bethought him of an expedient for re-establishing his influence over the Indians. His astronomical knowledge told him that on a certain night an eclipse of the moon would take place. One would think that people living in the open air must be accustomed to see such eclipses sufficiently often not to be particularly astonished at them. But Columbus judged, and, as the event proved, judged rightly, that by predicting the eclipse he would gain a reputation as a prophet and command the respect and the obedience due to a person invested with supernatural powers. He assembled caciques of the neighboring tribes. Then, by means of an interpreter, he reproached them with refusing to continue to supply provisions to the Spaniards. The God who protects me, he said, will punish you. You know what has happened to those of my followers who have rebelled against me, and the dangers which they encountered in their attempt to cross Haiti, while those who went at my command made that passage without difficulty. Soon, too, shall the divine vengeance fall on you. This very night shall the moon change her color and lose her light, in testimony of the evils which shall be sent upon you from the skies. The night was fine. The moon shone down in full brilliancy. But at the appointed time, the predicted phenomena took place, and the wild howls of the savages proclaimed their abject terror. They came in a body to Columbus and implored his intercession. They promised to let him want for nothing, if only he would avert this judgment. As an earnest of their sincerity, they collected hastily a quantity of food and offered it at his feet. At first, diplomatically hesitating, Columbus presently affected to be softened by their entreaties. He consented to intercede for them, and retiring to his cabin performed, as they supposed, some mystic rite which should deliver them from the threatened punishment. Soon the terrible shadow passed away from the face of the moon, and the gratitude of the savages was as deep as their previous terror, and henceforth there was no failure in the regular supply of provisions to the castaways. It is well to bear in mind the differences between the two kinds of eclipses. While a lunar eclipse may last for several hours, a solar eclipse is a matter of a few minutes. And while a lunar eclipse can only take place at full moon, a solar eclipse occurs at new moon. Professor Gregory gives an instance of a novelist who, in one of his books, describes an eclipse of the sun which took place at full moon and lasted half an hour. A little knowledge of the theory of eclipses would prevent such an error. As has been pointed out, an eclipse of the moon is caused by the immersion of our satellite in the shadow of the Earth. A solar eclipse, on the other hand, is caused by the moon's shadow falling on our planet. The moon is a much smaller body than the Earth, and consequently it has a much smaller shadow. The shadow is too small to completely cover the Earth. It merely falls on a portion of the globe, and at the parts immersed in the shadow the sun is totally eclipsed. Solar eclipses last only a few minutes, and they are confined to a narrow strip known as the shadow track. At any given place on the Earth's surface, total eclipses of the Sun are rare. There has not been a total eclipse of the Sun visible in the United Kingdom since 1724, and there will not be another until 1927. However, though rare at given points on the surface of our planet, they are fairly frequent when the Earth is considered as a whole. There are three kinds of solar eclipses. Total, partial, and annular. A total eclipse takes place when the moon is at its nearest point to the Earth, 
and consequently appears just large enough to hide the sun, and when our satellite is exactly in a line with the Earth and sun. A partial eclipse occurs when the moon is not exactly in a line with the Earth and sun, and only covers a portion of the disk, while an annular eclipse takes place when the moon is at its farthest point from the Earth and does not appear to be large enough to cover the disk of the sun, and thus we see an annulus, or ring of light, around the moon's disk. Of these three classes, only total eclipses are useful to astronomers, and that only because of a peculiar combination of circumstances. Seen from the Earth, the Sun and Moon appear to be about the same size. Consequently, at a total eclipse the Moon is large enough to cover the large and glowing disk of the Sun, but not large enough, fortunately for the science of astronomy, to obscure the immediate surroundings of the orb of day. When a solar eclipse takes place, Expeditions are sent to observe the phenomena from all parts of the globe. Those who are unacquainted with the problems of solar astronomy may think it strange that so many expeditions are dispatched to observe the obscuration of the sun by the moon, an event in itself of no particular importance. But owing to a combination of circumstances, these obscurations have proved to be full of interest to the astronomer. The interposition of the moon enables us to study the fainter and outlying portions of the sun. In the words of Professor Campbell, the director of the Lick Observatory, our sun is one of the ordinary stars. In size, perhaps it is only an average star, or it may be below the average. It is the only star near enough us to show a disk. All other stars are as mathematical points, even when our greatest telescopes magnify them 3,000-fold. The point image of a distant star includes all its details, and it must be studied as a whole whereas the sun can be studied in geometrical detail. It is not too much to say that our physical knowledge of the stars would be practically a blank if we had been unable to approach it through the study of our sun. If we would understand the other stars, we must first make a complete study of our own star. Several of the most interesting portions of our sun are invisible, except at times of solar eclipse. Our knowledge of the sun will be incomplete until these portions are thoroughly understood, and this is the reason why eclipse expeditions are dispatched, at great expense of time and money, to occupy stations within the narrow shadow belts. The chief objects of study during total eclipses are the solar prominences and the reversing layer, or shallow solar atmosphere, and the corona. The red prominences were formerly observable only during total eclipse, but in 1868, M. Janssen, viewing the total eclipse in India, and Sir Norman Lockyer, reasoning the matter out in England, discovered the method by which prominences could be observed in full sunlight, by means of the spectroscope. Accordingly, less attention is devoted to them during total eclipses. It may, however, be remarked that a class of objects known as white prominences, discovered by the late Professor Tacchini during the eclipse of 1883, are observable only on the occasion of a total eclipse. The corona is perhaps the chief object of interest in eclipse observations. The corona is a halo of light which makes its appearance as soon as the sun is totally eclipsed, and remains in view only during the few minutes of totality. It is not a solar atmosphere, using that word in its proper sense, and it is probably of a compound nature. The spectroscope has had little chance to teach us much regarding the corona, owing to the faintness of the spectrum and the short time of visibility. Professor Young considers that the coronal spectrum is composed of four superposed spectra, indicating, of course, that the corona is a compound phenomena. First, there is the continuous spectrum, due probably to incandescent dust, 
or solid and liquid particles near the Sun. Secondly, the gaseous spectrum, indicating the presence of gases of a permanent nature. This spectrum is distinguished by a green line, which has not been identified with any terrestrial element. Thirdly, there is the continuous spectrum of reflected sunlight with the dark Fraunhofer lines, due to sunlight reflected from meteoric dust. And fourthly, the light reflected in the Earth's atmosphere. Drawings and photographs of the corona show that its size and shape vary in a period of 11 years, corresponding with the changes of the solar spots, and even more nearly so with the period of the prominences. In fact, the late Professor Ticini showed that the distribution of the prominences and the shape of the corona vary in harmony. There is still much uncertainty as to the actual nature of the corona and as to what part electricity and magnetism may play in the phenomena. In Professor Campbell's words, much has been written concerning a possible eruptive origin or about magnetic influences in shaping the form of its streamers. It is a surprising fact that, with all the changes of form, we do not know whether the materials composing the streamers are moving in or out, or both or neither. Photographs of the corona should be secured for this purpose at widely separated stations, preferably at three or more stations, with essentially identical instruments and with equivalent exposures, in order that results may be as nearly comparable as possible. The reversing layer of the sun was discovered by Professor Young by means of the spectroscope during the total eclipse of 1870 visible in Spain. As the solar crescent grew thinner, says Professor Young, the dark lines of the spectrum itself gradually faded away, until all at once, as suddenly as a bursting rocket shoots out its stars, the whole field of view was filled with bright lines more numerous than one could count. The phenomena was so sudden, so unexpected, and so wonderfully beautiful as to force an involuntary exclamation. Professor Young concluded that every line in the spectrum had become bright, and hence the newly disclosed layer of the sun was called the reversing layer. In 1896, its spectrum was photographed by an English observer. The eclipse problem which appeals most to the popular mind is perhaps that of the possible existence of intermercurial planets, already discussed in an earlier chapter. With the exception of some doubtful observations in 1878, Eclipse observations have tended to negative the idea of even a small planet within the orbit of Mercury. Photographs were secured by Mr. W. H. Pickering in 1900 and by Professor Perrine in 1901, and on these no trace of an intramercurial planet was seen. Professor Campbell made an exhaustive search during the total eclipse of August 30, 1905, visible in Spain, and no trace of an intramercurial planet could be found. For those who have never seen a total eclipse, the following description by an American writer, Mrs. Todd, is worth reading as illustrating the magnificence of the spectacle. With frightening velocity, the actual shadow of the moon is often seen approaching, a tangible darkness advancing almost like a wall, swift as imagination, silent as doom. The immensity of nature never comes quite so near as then, and strong must be the nerve not to quiver as this blue-black shadow rushes upon the spectator with incredible speed. Sometimes the shadow engulfs the observer smoothly, sometimes apparently with jerks, but all the world might well be dead and cold and turned to ashes. Often the very air seems to hold its breath for sympathy. At other times a lull suddenly awakens into a strange wind blowing with unnatural effect. Then out upon the darkness, gruesome but sublime, flashes the glory of the incomparable corona, 
a silvery soft unearthly light with radiant streamers stretching at times millions of uncomprehended miles into space while the rosy flaming protuberances skirt the black rim of the moon in ethereal splendor it becomes curiously cold dew frequently falls and the chill is frequently mental as well as physical suddenly instantaneous as a lightning flash an arrow of actual sunlight strikes the landscape and earth comes to life again while corona and protuberance melt into the returning brilliance. For many years, eclipses both of the sun and the moon were a source of terror to mankind, before proper knowledge had been gained of their true cause. And even today, in uncivilized nations, eclipses cause much consternation. In China, drums are beat and trumpets blown to frighten the dragon, which is supposed to be devouring the sun. The Hindus think that an eclipse causes food to be unclean, and consequently that it is unfit for use. The following cutting from an American newspaper in 1878 indicates the excitement caused among the Red Indians by the total solar eclipse of 29th July, 1878. Some of them threw themselves upon their knees, others flung themselves flat on the ground face downwards, others cried and yelled in frantic excitement and terror. At last an old Indian stepped from the door of his lodge, pistol in hand, and, fixing his eyes on the darkened sun, mumbled a few unintelligible words and raising his arm, took direct aim at the luminary, fired off his pistol, and after throwing his arms about his head, retreated to his own quarters. As it happened, that very instant was the conclusion of totality. The Indians beheld the glorious orb of day once more peep forth, and it was unanimously voted that the timely discharge of the pistol was the only thing that drove away the shadow, and saved them from the public inconvenience that would certainly have resulted from the entire extinction of the sun. Closely allied to eclipses are transits. Only two planets can be seen in transit across the Sun, Mercury and Venus. These transits occur like eclipses of the Sun, when the Sun, the Earth and Mercury, or the Sun, the Earth and Venus, are in a straight line. But, owing to the very small apparent size of Mercury and Venus as seen from the Earth, there is no eclipse. We merely see the black disks of the planet as spots on the glowing face of the Sun. The first observed transit of Venus was predicted by Kepler, for 1631. These transits take place in pairs, separated by intervals of eight years, and the pairs are separated by intervals of 105 and a half and 121 and a half years. Kepler, although he had predicted the transit of 1631, was unaware of the fact that transits occur in pairs, and he did not expect another until 1761. A transit, however, took place in 1639 and was only witnessed by two persons. The story of its observation is an interesting one, and has long been a favorite among lovers of astronomy. A young Englishman, Jeremiah Horrocks, a curate in the English church, became at a very early age proficient in mathematical astronomy, and ascertained the fact that a transit of Venus, which Kepler had overlooked, would take place in 1639. The day he predicted for the transit happened to be a Sunday, and Horrocks could not observe continuously owing to his duties as a clergyman. At nine o'clock, he was obliged to suspend observations. But at ten, he was again watching. He saw nothing on the sun's disk. At noon, he was again at church, but by one o'clock, he was enabled to resume observations. To his sorrow, the sky clouded, and he almost abandoned hope of seeing the event he had predicted. But in the afternoon, the clouds dispersed. The orb of day shone out once more, and the young astronomer beheld, to his intense delight, Venus in transit across the sun. He had informed only one man, his young friend William Crabtree, of the occurrence of the event, 
and Crabtree also succeeded in observing the transit. But these two young men were the only observers of this occurrence, unexpected by the astronomers of the day. Horrocks, who gave promise of becoming one of the greatest astronomers of his time, did not long survive his triumph. He died shortly after, at the early age of 22. The next pair of transits occurred in 1761 and 1769. Before they took place, however, Halley had pointed out that observations on Venus while in transit would lead to a correct measurement of the distance of the Sun, and consequently several expeditions were sent to observe these transits at different ends of the Earth. As an erroneous estimate of the Sun's distance was deduced from these measurements, astronomers looked eagerly forward to the next two transits in 1874 and 1882. As before, expeditions were dispatched to all regions of the globe, but the results were disappointing, and astronomers have since devised better and more accurate methods of measuring the Sun's distance. The next pair of transits of Venus will take place in 2004 and 2012, and there will be another pair in 2117 and 2125. The reason of the rarity of these occurrences is the fact that the orbit of Venus is not exactly in the same plane as that of our Earth. Transits of Mercury are not of so much interest as those of Venus, and they are much more frequent. The last took place in 1907, and there will be another in 1917. Closely allied both to eclipses and transits are oculations. The difference, however, between transits and oculations is that, while a transit is the passage of an apparently small body over an apparently large body, an oculation is the obscuration of a body apparently small by a body apparently large. Thus, when the moon passes over Jupiter or Mars, or a star, it is said to occult these objects. In the system of Jupiter, which we only observe from a considerable distance, we can observe eclipses, transits, and oculations. We see the satellites immersed in the shadow, and we can also observe them in transit across the disk of their primary. In addition, we can observe Jupiter passing over and occulting these small bodies. Thus, observation of the system of Jupiter gives us a practical illustration of the fact that eclipses, transits, and oculations are all kindred phenomena, arising from the fact that every body shining by reflected light casts a shadow into space. End of chapter 17